Welcome back to Conversations About Student Mental Health. I really hope the summer has provided you with some opportunities to rest and refresh. Of course, if you're like most school professionals or parents, your summer has been filled with planning, replanning, and more replanning to resume school in the fall. Of necessity, much of our planning has focused on health and safety, including ensuring social distancing, arranging transportation, procuring PPE, and creating student cohorts. But what about our preparations for instruction? We've all seen numerous national news reports declaring this spring's remote learning a disaster. We know that according to the National Center for Education Statistics, that 14% of U.S. students, that's about 9.4 million, don't even have proper digital access. And this is a significant concern. But numerous reports and surveys describe how even students with digital access and their parents were profoundly disappointed with the instruction they received during the lockdown. Students and parents were understandably worried about not feeling engaged, lacking socialization, and being just plain bored. And although schools are trying desperately to create the conditions for safe in-person learning, most systems are finding they will have to start the year in a hybrid mix of in-person and remote learning. My guest today has developed a game-changing model of hybrid instruction that provides opportunities for students to be more engaged, more interactive, and more successful in hybrid learning environments. Engaging students meaningfully and encouraging lots of interaction promotes better academic progress and also supports mental health. I am truly excited to welcome Dr. Nancy Sula to the show. Dr. Sula is the author of five books on creating student-driven, blended learning environments. She's also a national speaker and thought leader in transforming learning environments to build student engagement, empowerment, and efficacy. Her instructional plan for designing hybrid learning environments is giving teachers hope for an entirely new look for schooling. Nancy, I want to thank you so much for taking time from your incredibly busy schedule to join us today. Thank you, Chris. It's really great to have you. So let's jump in. First of all, since, since this podcast is about student mental health, some of our listeners may be wondering just how a model of hybrid instruction applies. Can you talk a little bit about how your instructional model helps support not only academic success, but social and emotional health? Uh, that's a great question, and I, I actually think there are some benefits. I'm actually finding that uh, some of the students who have found school a little fearful, especially when you talk about the middle grades, where students have to navigate their way uh, through the, the social aspects of school, are actually benefiting from being home a little bit more. And I think the hybrid model is actually going to allow them to you know, engage in school, but then have a little bit of a rest uh, and then come back and engage again. But within the model, in terms of the structures, I believe that students need five aspects, if you will. One is that students really need a connection to their teacher. Uh, and so one of the things we recommend is that teachers offer a morning video every morning, one or two minutes that just says, hello, students, it's Tuesday, whatever that would be that students can actually watch, see their teacher's face, and feel that connection even if they're home. 
Uh, I believe that students also have a need for the known, especially in a time when so much is unknown. So for instance, instead of coming to school and waiting for the teacher to take the reins, we recommend an activity list that teacher that students can have access to. So they will literally see these are the activities in which you'll be engaging today or across the week. So they have a a sense of comfort in knowing something about what's going on, their, their instructional activities. I believe students also have a need to be seen. And we, I'm not a fan of the whole class uh, uh, video conference where you're trying to connect with 20, 25 students at once. Uh, I am a fan of small group mini lessons. So now the teacher can be on video with just a number of students. And in a hybrid world, they could actually have two students in class, two or three students at home, all coming together so that the student really gets to be seen and heard. And I think that's important. I also believe, particularly in these times, reflection is very important. It allows students to think about how did I feel about that lesson or about what I'm learning? How did I experience it? What else do I want to know? So we implement something called an efficacy journal, which is intended to move students to being more efficacious, feeling like they can tackle anything, as I like to say, change the world. And so that reflection piece should be built in every day. And finally, students need to know there's always support. I'm, I'm a very big fan of a variety of types of videos that teachers and or their school-based colleagues would, uh, would film so that students can always go back and, and watch it again. You know, you don't get that in a live lesson. You can't rewind the teacher, but you can rewind the video, pause it, start again, et cetera. So I think those five, the connection, the, the need to be known, uh, I mean, to, the need to have the known to be seen, to be reflective and to know you have the support will really help ground students in this very different way of looking at school. That's really great, Nancy. You actually anticipated one of my questions. I was going to ask you about live streaming because I know that you had critiqued that in the past. But this, if, if, if anybody has any doubt or had any doubt about what's the connection to mental health, I think you have more than answered that question. You know, in terms of pro providing students with a sense of connection, uh, with a connection with uh, with a sense of connecting to something that's known because there is so much uncertainty right now. And this is something that adults and children are really struggling with. Uh, the opportunity to be seen, um, the opportunity to engage in reflection and to receive support. Uh, those are just obviously all uh, such components of good mental health. Thank you. And now I'm curious about that second question since apparently I'm reading your mind. Yeah, you were reading my mind because, <laughs> look, I think in talking with colleagues, I think, you know, some of the feedback that parents gave, you know, what they wanted was their kids to be engaged. Um, and so I think the assumption that everybody has if it is if we can, let's recreate the classroom, right? So let's, if we can just, if we've got half the kids in school and half the kids at home, let's make sure the half the kids at home can have, quote unquote, the same experience that the kids are having in school, which is kind of impossible. But I think that's what a lot of people are aiming for. And I think what you're pointing out is that, you know, that kind of uh, stand and deliver kind of experience isn't the best thing to engage kids anyway. Right, right. So, um, 
you know, kids can be more engaged, can feel more seen, can feel much more of a, a connection with the teacher if the teacher is, you know, kind of recording any kind of whole group experience. And that, that whole group, that whatever that mini lesson is, is not terribly long. But there's also that huge advantage of the kids being able to go back and replay it and replay it again and listen to it as many times as they like. And then to be able to conference either in individually or in a small group with the teacher um, to really, you know, gain the maximum benefit. Absolutely. Yeah. So another thing I was thinking about, you know, I, I was reading that your white paper, which was excellent, and I've shared it with Thank my teams. Uh, but another thing you highlight in your white paper is the super skills, as you call them, that teachers can leverage in a typical live classroom. And you point out that in a hybrid environment, teachers need new super skills. So can you tell us more about the super skills that people need in a hybrid environment? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fond of these. Uh, and I do think, uh, I think what happened in March when schools closed, everyone was wondering what to do. I think there was a certain sense of denial, you know, well, this will just be for a week or two. None of us knew what was going on. And I think that while schools gave it their best shot at trying to figure out how to continue to provide instruction. I do believe that teachers were not engaged with students in live ways enough. And I think that for whatever the reasons that, uh, you know, that was happening, I feel like parents were feeling as though their students were just home working on their own. And that made parents nervous and parents started asking schools, you know, we want more teacher time. We want more live streaming. So, I always said, be careful what you wish for, because what you don't want is that live streaming. Uh, what you do want is more teacher engagement with your students. So, but there's another way to get there. And I feel like when I, I talk about when, when teachers have their class, if you think of a physical classroom, and you're looking at, you know, 10, 20 students, 25 students in a classroom, as you're offering your lesson, you can look around, scan the faces and see who has that furrowed brow look and, and you can launch right into more explanation. You can see when a light bulb goes off in a student's head, you can call on that student and ask them to explain what they're thinking. If you have a distraction, like uh, I was remembered as a teacher when the bee flew in the classroom, you could pause instruction and then pick up with it later. When you're live streaming, you lose all of that. You don't have that ability anymore. You cannot, especially if you're presenting uh, slides, for instance, on a screen, you don't see all of those students' faces, and they're generally the size of postage stamps. So you can't really see what's going on in their brains with a whole class. Uh, at the same time, you usually have students muted so that you don't have the distractions from home, but then you don't know what distractions they're up against. So if you're presenting critical content live where it's one shot, you either get it or you missed it, there are too many opportunities for students to miss it when they're just home uh, live streaming in. So what I suggest instead is, again, a little bit more of a dependence on videos, but videos that the teachers make. So I would videotape my lesson. And within that videotape, I have the ability to be somewhat engaging. For instance, I can, uh, pause, I can say to the student, so pause the video and try this problem on your own and then start the video again when you think you have the answer. And then when they pause the video and then start it again, 
the teacher can say, all right, so here's the answer I got. Let me tell you how I got it. Let's see if that's how you got it. So the teacher can do a little bit of back and forth in an instructional video. And the advantage is that a student, whether they're in school or home, can watch that video as many times as they need. And I think that's a real equity issue that allows students access. And then when the teacher does bring the group together, and I still recommend not the full class, but maybe half class at a time, you can have a, what I call a, a benchmark discussion, benchmarking being that at this particular, benchmarking meaning at this particular point in uh, the unit of study, now I know you need this skill. So I'm gonna hold that discussion and think of the advantage of this. Most students, when they are ready, when they're sitting before the teacher waiting for instruction, they don't even know what the teacher's about to present. And then as the teacher's presenting it, their brains are trying to make sense of it. Then the teacher's asking questions and they're wondering, well, do I have it or don't I have it? And some students need more time. And so instead, let's dispense with that. Let's let students grapple with content through watching a video, engaging in the activity list on a few learning activities. And then when the teacher brings them together, the teacher's job is to use these four new super skills, which I'm saying is first ask questions that explore student thinking. So what did you learn by watching the video and the activity list? What ideas do you have for how we could use this information? Uh, where, would it, where would it fit with what else we're trying to do? How does it connect to something else we've learned? Just get kids talking and then be an analyzer. So then you start to say, well, what if, and you try to push their thinking a little bit more deeply in, into the content, then you become a synthesizer. So you pull it all together and say, well, all right, so let's just summarize this. And you make sure that now students have heard you saying what it is that you're making sure that they've learned and then you become the catalyst and you ask something that is going to push them to the next level so if we can do this then i wonder what would happen if and you get them all thinking about the next thing they're going to learn so they're very excited to go and watch the next video work on the activity list and come back for another discussion those are my new super skills so it's exploring student thinking uh, I think I missed one. Becoming the analyzing, analyzing. So you're really mm -hmm. up. You're up at the top of Bloom's taxonomy, right? Which you can't be when you are offering live instruction for the first time. So there's two benefits. It's one is the benefit of letting students grapple with the content a little before they come, and and you know I have to say to teachers, trust me, I've been doing this for decades. Students really can grapple with the discussion with with information before you present it. And then that just makes your part when you're discussing it um, even richer because the students are coming with something. Yes. And it, it also occurs to me that that grappling uh, creates novelty. You know, yes. if you're if you're trying something out for the first time, it has novelty. And. And I think, you know, as you go through this process with the students, they trust that you're not, you're not going to let them be in over their heads. You're going to give them something that is appropriate for them to grapple with. And then you're going to support them through a process of discovery and, uh, you know, deepening their thinking as they go and always, uh, you know, moving it up towards the higher levels rather than staying down in knowledge and comprehension. Right. Because right. that's... And that, that that's repetitive and boring. Right. Right. And that grappling allows the brain to make sense. You know, I say that the way you learn is 
you have to have a little cognitive dissonance, which means that your brain has to say, wait, I, I can't make sense of this. And then as you're grappling with it, when you do find the answer, when you resolve that, you learn that sticks. And I think too often in learning, we want to jump in and save the student so that they are, they don't feel uncomfortable. It's good to feel uncomfortable when you're learning. And if it's a productive feeling of being uncomfortable and students get used to that being okay, they will not only learn, but retain it much longer. That makes a great deal of sense. Definitely. Um, it, 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 it makes sense in terms of engaging them, in terms of piquing their interest. And it also makes sense in terms of what we know about how kids naturally learn. Mm. I had a funny story that uh, I was listening to a presentation today by a person who was candidating to work at the company, and she was presenting on uh, Latin dancing. And as she talked about the beats, she said, so it's an eight, it's an eight beat step. It's one, two, three forward, one, two, three backward. Now I'm immediately saying one, two, three, one, two, three, that's six. Why is it an eight beat step? And she said that several times. I was experiencing cognitive dissonance. Eight beats, but I'm only hearing six. What I don't what did I miss? What so now my brain is paying attention because now I want to know what the answer is. And then all of a sudden she says, So you make and it was like the cha-cha, you step one, two, three, pause, one, two, three, pause. She said that that beat in there, the fourth beat and the uh and the eighth beat are actually like the silent E in a word that you don't hear it, but it's there. And I, I will never forget that. Like mm. that will be with me forever because I had the appropriate cognitive dissonance. I wasn't drowning in it. And it was short that within a minute or so I had the answer. And it, then I was like, Oh my God, that makes so much sense. And I was a happy learner. I think we need to do that more in school. And I do believe you can do that when you're offering a video activity list and then coming back together to uh, have that discussion. That's a great sequence. You know, so you're giving the students the opportunity to experience something on their own, bring something to the table with you. you there's a selection of activities for them to choose from to help them prepare. And now they're now you're bringing them together and you're not bringing them together in that postage stamp environment where they're one of 25 or 30, but you're bringing them together in an environment where there's room for them to interact with with you as the teacher and with each other. Yes. And some people say to me, well, isn't this the flipped classroom? And I say that there, there are definitely commonalities, but I'm not expecting every student to go home and watch my video and then come in and discuss it. I want to offer a small inspirational video and then an activity list of options, one of which might be a further instructional video by myself or a colleague, uh, something that's on the web. And then what I can do in that activity list is I can differentiate. So I have the ability to offer a variety of learning opportunities, not only differentiating for their cognitive level, you know, am I ready to learn this or do I need to go back to the prerequisites, but also learning styles. Do I want to read this text? Do I want to work on an interactive website? So that I think there's a richness that teachers can build in, but it's that same idea of flipping it to let students grapple with the context first and then come into class, which is the, the mindset behind the flipped classroom. Mm -hmm. Yes, got it. 
So I think in a sense, you're, you, you've kind of almost anticipated my next question again. Oh, I'm good at this, huh? You really are. Um, <laughs> so, I, well, I think you know I'm a big fan of the work of Sir, Sir Ken Robinson, who mm-hmm. has, uh, you know, I think since like 1998, he's critiqued our factory model of education. And putting this factory model behind us is another piece that you talk about in your work. And in addition to that, during this current COVID-19 crisis, you emphasize that, yes, this crisis is tough, it's difficult, it's painful, but it also presents an opportunity for us to reimagine student learning and design instruction that's much more effective. So can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, how, about the opportunity and about the, uh, you know, how this helps us transform education? Sure. So... I'll start by saying, make your classroom more like a marketplace than a factory. I think that's a good metaphor for it. Uh, Our factory model of education actually came out of Prussia uh, over 100 years ago. And what it really a military model of how do we prepare people to be workers? I remember that my mom was a she worked in a gear works. And when I used to ask her what she did, she simply sat at this station and every time the next gear came through, she put a drill through it, and all she had to do was make sure she didn't put the drill through her finger, <laughs> and that was how, and I right. thought, wow, what a boring job, <laughs> but but that was the, the factory model jobs of the day, and someone thought, well, we could do this with kids. We're going to take everybody who's eight years old and put them in one room. We'll take everyone who's nine years old and put them in another room, and we started sorting children, and then if you think about it, and you really see this at the uh, middle and upper levels, we we take you and put you in a room where we fill you with math. Then we move you down the conveyor belt to your English class and we fill you with English. Then we move you down. And it's very funny when we start thinking about how factory like we are, we even call the people that oversee the work supervisors, which is a factory line job. But we have moved that, that the whole factory came out in the second industrial revolution Uh, We've since moved to a third industrial revolution, and we're on the cusp now of a fourth industrial revolution in which technology is playing a major role, not only in enhancing our work and our lives, but in actually designing, like computers are now designing the next level of computers. And this can go very well or very poorly for us. So the more that we understand how we might be able to use technology, for example, the better able we will be to make sure that our world becomes morphed into the kind of place that we want it to be. Uh, And so along those lines, there is so much available through technology that we need to take advantage of. I often say everything you need to learn is on the internet. Everything you need to learn is on the internet. What's not on the internet is that ability to analyze multiple pieces of information and then synthesize them uh, to look at the debate side of, of seeing multiple sides to a situation, uh, be, being able to communicate your ideas with another person about what you found on the internet. So we need to move teachers from being the person who has uh, all, you know, all of the information to just deliver it and fill the next student to making the teachers the facilitators, uh, curators, if you will, of a rich learning environment. And if you think about a marketplace, you know, you come in and you're like, well, here's what I need. And then you you find the piece, the, the 
materials, uh, foods, vegetables, whatever it is that you're looking for. I guess a vegetable is a food. Uh, but you, you find what you need and then you start engaging with the marketplace people and then they start talking about why this brand might be better than this brand or what it is that you need and and if you think about it a marketplace is a busy buzzing place where everyone can get what they need as they move around and engage in discussions and engage with one another and i see that that's what a classroom should look like whether all of the students are in it all of the students are at home or or there's a mix that's great. I love that. You think I, Sir Ken would like that? I do think Sir Ken would like that. When you were talking about the students being in grades, you know, by age level, I was thinking about how he would characterize that. He said, it's almost as if we've uh, organized students by date of manufacture, um, <laughs> you know, and why is that the way in which we uh, organize students for learning? Why do we group them in that way? Um, it, there's no reason to it other than, you know, Okay, they were born that at that time. That's about it. But it what they sense, right? what they that doesn't mean that they have the things in common that they need. That it makes sense to put them all together. And furthermore, if you're talking about a classroom that is much more like a marketplace than a factory, and you're giving students uh, structured choices all the time, and kind of enabling them to steer their own ship, um, you know, obviously with guidance, uh, that you know, that completely takes you in a whole different direction for learning. And it really, again, is much more aligned with how kids, when, when babies are born, they kind of are naturally learners. Um, yes. And toddlers are naturally learners. That's why they're into everything. Uh, mm -hmm. They're improvising all the time. So, you know, when you put kids in that kind of place where everybody has to do everything the same way at the same time, it actually interrupts the learning process uh, rather than fosters it. Absolutely. And, and this is our opportunity. I mean, it, it's an unprecedented opportunity for us to be able to reboot education and think of it differently, which is why I cringe when people are talking about, we'll just put a camera in the room and live stream the lesson home, because that's basically saying, uh-oh, the factory broke down, so let's figure out how we can just recreate it with technology instead of saying, no, no, technology has to change the way we live and think. And that happened to me early in my career as a teacher, and then uh, it was a time when teaching jobs were very hard to come by, and anyone who, who didn't already have 11 years in was being laid off because we were having a reduction in students. And so I decided I would go off and do something else, and I became um, a programmer analyst and, and taught myself programming and went off to the, to the industry. What was interesting is that technology just became a part of my life. It was the way we communicated, collaborated, shared information, and it was just, you know, part of my daily life. And then I just woke up one day and I said, what are you doing? You know, you always wanted to be a teacher. You always wanted to be in the field of education. So I decided to come back and I came back and it was the early eighties when schools were trying to, uh, put computers into bring, bring, uh, computers into schools when schools were trying to bring computers into schools. And what was interesting is that when we first brought computers into schools, we set up a computer lab with a computer teacher and a computer curriculum. And I walked in and scratched my head and thought technology was just seamlessly infused into my life out in that real world. So I designed a classroom model called the Learner Active Technology Infused Classroom, 
which was all about technology being used seamlessly through the day. And I think this is our time to rethink, given everything we have now, if we had to start all over again and create an educational system, what could it look like? I mean, I might be a little pie in the sky here thinking that we could we could change it all, but we can at least start with some of the instructional pieces there. Well, I think I think you're right that this does uh, this does present a great opportunity. Uh, a colleague of mine also often makes reference to the education system as kind of being like big ships. You know, big ships take a long time to start. They take a long time to slow down. They take a long time even to make a turn. Uh, so they're right. not they're not maneuverable. They they kind of you know have this kind of very slow pace of changing momentum and inertia. Uh, so, but, but the good news is a hurricane just came and ripped through our ship. Yes. So, so now we have to think about how do we transport differently instead of just rebuilding. So often opportunities grow out of crises. So it's a it's yeah, an excellent yeah. point. And Chris, I, I just have to interject where you talked about students questioning at a very young age, how students really always ask, well, why this? Why, why, why? Right. Uh, I saw a graph recently, and I have to find it and, and pull it out and put it in a blog post uh, that showed that students ask a tremendous number of questions up until age five, and then their questions drop off significantly. And I believe it is because once they head into school, and they start firing out all those questions, the teachers say, okay, well, hold that question, or, well, that's not what we're talking about now. And they very quickly learn school is not the place to ask questions. Yes, students become socialized to the factory, and in the factory, it's not a place for your individual questions. It's time for you to be quiet and listen to what I have to say. Right, right. Exactly. Um, So... Another thing I'm thinking, we're, we're getting towards the end of our time, but another thing I was thinking about is, you know, starting the year. And I think that, you know, teachers who, who really put a priority in the, on the social and emotional health of their students want to make sure they're setting a positive tone and foundation early in the year. So going into this year, which is a little different because we're coming back after this, this lockdown and, and, and school is going to be different. Uh, what's one piece of advice you would offer to teachers as they prepared or re-enter their classrooms this fall? One of the things that I've been concerned about is that during the summer, schools have been preparing to change what the room looks like. So desks are being moved apart, uh, plexiglass is being installed, uh, you know, little X's on the floor determining where you can stand, where you can't stand, Uh, people talking about lunch being at the student seat, students not really being able to engage too much with one another. There's all of this. I've been looking at some pictures of classrooms, and all I keep thinking is students who are just off doing summer in whatever ways they possibly can are not thinking about this at all. For many students, when they come back to school, this is going to be a huge shock. And I think that this could play out very poorly on social and emotional health when students suddenly hit that classroom. So I have been recommending to educators that they actually do a little video tour, film the classroom, Mm. and film it in an exciting way. Like, and look, we're going to be able to do this here, and look at this. And while we're saying that this is going to keep you safe, so that students have a sense of it. And so that when it goes back to what I said on the first question, students need to be comforted by the known 
So the more they know about that year coming in, the better. The more that even teachers can explain in a video, sending it home and saying to the students, hi, I can't wait to see you. You know, things are going to be a little different this year. Here's how we're going to do it. I think kids will be better. And I would say, too, uh, I, I have kindergarten teachers who will tell me how sad it is that students won't be able to experience the kindergarten the way that, that uh, you know, it, it's meant to be. And I just stop them and I say, but just remember, of all those grade levels, the kindergartners are the only ones who probably don't know all that much about what school looks like because they haven't experienced anything yet. So your kindergarten students are your perfect opportunity to come in and start something different. Uh, and I think that it the more that teachers can create videos. And the, and the reason I say videos is, you know, this is a video generation. Our, our kids today make, make their own videos, watch video clips, send video clips to their friends. Uh, I think that, that for them to have short, not long, videos can be a great way for them to absorb information. So I'm not saying we don't use text anymore by any stretch of the imagination, but I think a video of the teacher, the teacher's face saying, I'm so excited, 10 more days till we can start school. I wanted to share this with you, or I wanted to share that with you. I think that that could make a world of difference to calm kids down, make them feel good, make them know their teacher in advance, uh, you know, so that they get to know the teacher in advance, they get to see the classroom in advance, they get to hear about how some of this will be home and some of this will be in school. But look at this. We're going to be able to actually use this little corner here to bring students in if they're home. I think all of that would really help to, I call it priming, and it's really even pre-priming. Before they even get to school, reach out to your students and make sure that you're connecting with them so that when they come into school on that first day, it's everything is already known. That makes a tremendous amount of sense and it fits right in with, you know, what you were saying about instruction. You know, when you provide that kind of grounding for kids and that sense of the known, uh, that sets them up to be ready for an important process of learning, which is being willing not to know. In order to learn, you have to recognize that you don't know something and you have to be okay with not knowing something and grapple with it and have that cognitive dissonance. But you do need that sense of security to hold on to, and, and in a sense, now more than ever. Yes, let that. I love that, Chris. It's like let the let the cognitive dissonance be around academics, mm -hmm. where it belongs, and not about where am I going to sit. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. Um, so the thing I'm thinking right now, Nancy, is people are probably like, "Wow, where can I learn more?" I, I believe you're working on a, a new book. And I'd love to hear about that for a moment, but I'd also love, I think people would love to know where else can they go to learn more uh, about your model? Uh, so I have a couple of companies, but probably the one that you could head to right now and find the white paper at least is uh, I-D-E-C-O-R-P, that's I-D-E Corp, stands for Innovative Designs for Education, idecorp.com. Uh, I also have a site, nancysula.com, uh, uh, so we can probably uh, find more there. I have another company called Edquidity. Too many companies? If I, <laughs> and Edquidity uh, is a company that provides virtual services to schools and businesses. So lots of places. Uh, I am published by Routledge, and I think probably if you just Google Nancy Sula, 
books or Nancy Sula, anything, you'll, you'll find a lot of information. My, my, uh, series, I have a book on executive function that has been helping a lot of teachers getting ready for the fall because we need to build executive function for students to succeed. But I'm also probably best known for this series, Students Taking Charge, which is about putting students in charge of their own learning. Still, that was written for a physical classroom. So now I am working on designing pre-K to 12 hybrid learning environments, learning anytime, anywhere. Excellent. Excellent. That's great stuff. And because this is a podcast, if you missed any of that, please uh, rewind and listen again. Um, (laughs) So, uh, Nancy, I really, again, want to thank you for taking time because I know that you're you know, three companies, you're pretty busy. Um, and you're always working and doing such good work for teachers and students, which I really appreciate. And thank you again for being with us today. Thank you. It was great to share and, uh, good luck. Thank you so much. And everyone, I I just want to thank you for joining us again today. And please do join us, uh, in the near future for more conversations about student mental health. Have a great rest of the summer.